Continuing my semi-regular look at the amazing Spider-Man from the very beginning. For those that are new, previous episodes in this series are number 38, 40, 42, 44, 46, 49, 52, 93, 94, 108, 113 and 118. Which makes me feel like I'm doing the National Lottery. These episodes cover Amazing Fantasy 15 through Amazing Spider-Man 67. Which means this show picks up with Amazing Spider-Man issue 68, published in October 1968. Crisis on the Campus is a John Romita cover and instantly recognisable. This shot of Spider-Man swinging above the heads of the student protest was used as clip art for years after this issue saw print. There are even a few familiar faces in the crowd, once you've read the issue, like Josh Kittle and Randy Robertson. In all fairness, it's not the most eye-catching of Ramita's covers, as it's rather static, but it's nicely coloured. The art team behind this issue was John Ramita and Jim Mooney, providing storyboards and illustrations, a nice distinction of the artistic duties. The story was lettered by Sam Rosen and scripted by Stan Lee, which were pretty much the credits for all the issues covered tonight, unless otherwise stated. The Kingpin of Crime is studying a well-put-together PowerPoint presentation featuring fascinating images of a portion of a petrified stone tablet. What the tablet is scared of is never clarified. Why is it so valuable? inquires the Kingpin of his aide, Wilson. Countless men have died for it, Wilson replies. Then it must be mine, the Kingpin declares. Excuse me, but what? You know, I'll be honest, as motivations go, men have died for it. Isn't that great? I mean, we learn over the next few pages that the tablet is older than the Dead Sea Scrolls and whoever can decipher it may learn some great secrets of the universe, but I didn't really see how this would even be of interest to the Kingpin. Dr. Octopus, yes, he'd have gone after this as his ego is such that I reckon he thinks he'd probably be able to figure it out. The vulture may have gone after it for the money, but the kingpin? What's in this for him? How does this help him rule the underworld? And how lucky is it that the kingpin is interested, just as it's on display at Empire State University, College of Peter Parker? We're then treated to some standard kingpin stuff, none of which is new to long-time readers. The kingpin shucks off his robe and orders his men to attack him. He makes short work of them whilst loudly announcing once again how fast he is for one so big, how he's almost preternaturally strong, and how Spider-Man is the only one who has ever escaped him, and only then, by pure luck. This is odd, as those of us that have read these issues seem to recall that things went a little differently. This is nevertheless a fine way to open the issue. The art is nice, but there's a lot of repetition of what we've seen before. Still, after four and a half pages, let's check in on our star, the ever-amazing Spider-Man. He's arrived back home after an evening of pointless activity that netted him absolutely zero pictures to sell to the Daily Bugle. His return home finds his window locked. 
He crawls around the side to enter Harry's room. This was another oddity. The art doesn't really support this story choice. Spider-Man puts his hand on the window ledge, but we don't see him struggle with the lock, nor do we see Spider-Man move around the building. He just stands there and then enters what looks like the same window. It's also stated that Harry has locked Peter's window, but leaves his own wide open, which is a weird invasion of privacy. Anyway, whatever the intent, we cut to the next day, where Peter arrives at ESU and quickly runs into Robbie Robertson's son, Randy. This is Randy and Peter's first meeting, which is cool. They chit-chat a bit and then run into Josh Kittling, who claims he's met Peter before, but the official index of The Amazing Spider-Man states that this is his first appearance. Either way, Josh tells Peter and Randy that the student body are upset that a building is being designated for housing for visiting alumni, thanks to the tablet being displayed, while a lot of students are petitioning to turn the building into a low-rent dorm. Peter agrees with the students, but doesn't commit to attending the demonstration. A pair of hands then reach around his head, cover Peter's eyes and ask, guess who? And Peter guesses wrong. He guesses Murray Jane, when in fact it's Gwen. Gwen is not impressed that MJ is the first girl Peter thought of, an unintentionally hilarious comment on the male-female dynamic. Fortunately, Peter is a fast thinker, and he asks Gwen if he's found something that makes Gwen jealous. Gwen demures, but tells Peter if he mentions MJ again, he's in big trouble. Lovely little moment, this, capturing the more playful side of Peter and Gwen's relationship. Jonah is his blustery self and Robbie is throwing him shade. It's a total mood with Robbie not taking any of Jonah's guff, defending Peter, mentioning that no one got the Mysterio story that Jonah's bitching about and basically telling Jonah to back off. Robbie's mood is due to his being distracted by his son Randy as he's afraid his son is going to get in over his head with the demonstration march he's going on. After class, Peter and Gwen visit Aunt May. She's still ill, but she's savvy enough to twig that Gwen and Peter are quite serious about each other. Gwen blushes, Peter is surprised by how much his luck is changing, and May doesn't mention that there's something wrong with her. Again. Peter and Gwen are really moving to the next level here. It's going to be interesting to see when Stan slams on the brakes, if he ever does. Narration then tells us that it's the next day when Peter returns to ESU to see the student protests. But everybody's wearing the same clothes. If it was just Peter and his natty blue turtleneck, I'd chalk it up to him not having had time to hit the laundrette. But Josh, Randy, even Jonah and Robbie are all dressed exactly the same as yesterday. Peter finds the mobs ready to march on the dorms, and Josh thrusts a sign in Peter's hands. Something about Josh rubs Peter the wrong way, though, and he gives him an earful about talking to the Dean before going hell for leather. Josh flies off the handle and calls Peter a chicken for not wanting to get involved. This didn't go well for Marty McFly. I can't imagine it going well for Peter Parker. Overall, though, I like this scene. Peter clearly sides with the students. The low-rent dorms would be a good use of the space and a decent way of financially helping deprived students. But Josh seems to be one of those guys who goes directly to confrontation rather than it being a last resort. Peter being more even-tempered is not willing to go that far just yet. Josh even hits on the idea of grabbing the tablet to get the man to talk to them. 
This causes the guards to go for their guns, and Peter can see this spiralling out of control, but feels that interfering as Spider-Man may make things worse. He's probably right. Peter elects to remain as is and take photos for the Daily Bugle. Speaking of the Bugle, Jonah and Robbie, having a dog in this race, head over to ESU to cover the story of the unrest themselves. The Kingpin is also using the demonstration as cover to steal the tablet as Lee and Ramita ramp up the tension of the story wonderfully. Whilst the premise is a little shaky, the plot brings all the disparate elements together masterfully, with Peter, Josh, Randy, Jonah, Robbie and the Kingpin all brought into the action at the same place and time, in such an organic way that the actual mechanics of the plot are forgotten. Peter has no choice now but to change into Spider-Man, as the arrival of the Kingpin is too big a variable to ignore. Let's take a moment to admire the plot, should we? Stan and John have really took their time setting this up, it being a full 15 pages before we even see Spider-Man. In fact, the Spider-Man stuff is tangential to the story being told, which is one of youthful anger and rebellion. Stan is also tackling the issue of race. It's heavily implied that the cheaper dorms would primarily be for people of colour, and Josh is fighting for equal rights. Whilst Josh is almost a typical angry young man, he's quite justified in his anger rather than evil or misguided. His manner needs work. For instance, implying that Peter is a racist for not helping out is going a tad far, but he's Spike Jones before Spike Jones. Let's give kudos to Stan and John for not only tackling this subject, but tackling it with sensitivity and restraint. Spider-Man tries to stop the Kingpin and Randy tries to help Spider-Man, but he gets his head handed to him. The Kingpin knocks Randy away with a backhand slap and Spidey sees red. This is ably demonstrated in the art by a montage of great shots of Spider-Man slapping the Kingpin down with no dialogue at all. You know Spider-Man is pissed off when he's not talking. The Kingpin fires his walking stick at Spider-Man, which destroys the wall behind him. The resultant debris threatens to crush Randy, so Spider-Man throws his own body over the younger Robertson. The Kingpin runs away with the tablet, ecstatically believing Spider-Man to be dead. Spider-Man's not so easily killed, though, and after checking Randy's okay, he pursues the Kingpin. Meanwhile, the demonstrators are all arrested under suspicion of property damage and illegal possession. Pretty good issue, belying its pedestrian start. The creative team handle these potentially controversial themes admirably and with class, resulting in a story that is timely and topical. I don't know how the kids recognised who the Kingpin is, as he seems to be quite the behind-the-scenes player, but other than that, this is an adequate issue for him. As I say, he's pretty unimportant to the actual plot, but I guess we need a villain. Mission Crush the Kingpin is issue 69 and is, say it with me, a stunning John Romita cover. The Kingpin takes Spider-Man from behind, hmm. his meaty sausage fingers wrapped around Spidey's arms. The splash page to this issue is a corker. Jim Mooney is never mentioned as a great Spider-Man artist, but he had a decent run with the Wallcrawler, both here and in the 1980s on the secondary title, Peter Parker, the Spectacular Spider-Man. The art this issue is drenched in shadow and oozes noir. Spider-Man clings to the walls, scouring the city with his Spider-Sense for the Kingpin. That's not really how Spider-Sense works, unless Spidey got a spider tracer on the Kingpin, which he didn't. Stan uses this opportunity to have Spidey exposit on the plot so far, but he forgets what that is. Last issue, the Kingpin wanted the tablet himself, as whoever could decipher it could uncover the myriad secrets of the universe. 
For the Kingpin, knowledge is power. Here, Spider-Man thinks that the mere sale of the tablet to a foreign power is the motivation. To be fair to Stan, we can read this as Spidey's supposition of the theft, not the Kingpin's actual motivations, which Spidey is unaware of. Back at the Kingpin's lure, further discussions are taking place on how to defeat Spider-Man when he inevitably finds them. One of the goons mistakenly refers to the Kingpin's wife as the only thing he's afraid of, which arouses the Kingpin's ire. The Kingpin backhands the guy so hard he almost takes his head off. This is the first mention of the Kingpin's wife, Vanessa, who will come to play a large part in the future. Back at Police HQ, Jonah is steaming about the young anarchists, but ever the voice of reason, George Stacy placates Jonah by pointing out little things like, you know, proof. I wonder what Robbie would say about Jonah referring to his son as a young anarchist. This is yet another example of Stan's even-handedness. It would be fur of Stan to play the older characters against the younger ones. After all, this was the era of don't trust anyone over 30. But George is a very reasonable older man. Jonah, however, is as reactionary as ever. Inside, Randy and the other protesters are being questioned by the police, and Robbie is allowed to be present. Another of Stan's almost preachy but not quite scenes follows, as Randy tells Robbie that he has to be more militant because his father has become part of the establishment that keeps them down. Robbie counter-argues that he is the embodiment of what they are fighting for, a person of colour who's made it on his own terms. Stan pulls back from being corny by presenting both sides of the argument, allowing readers the chance to wonder whose side they would be on, if any. Again, this is 1968 Stanley, a man who many would argue was bombastic, over-the-top, corny, and lived off of other people, but... I don't see Jack Kirby or Steve Ditko's name anywhere on these credits. Outside, the demonstrators who weren't arrested are protesting further, and Gwen argues that they are making matters worse. How will protesting here at the police station get the Dean to recognise their need for a low-rent dorm at ESU? One of the protesters calls Peter a chicken for not being here, and gorgeous, boring, white-bred Gwen Stacy hauls off and punches him in the face. She would have been arrested too, if not for one of the coppers recognising her as Captain Stacy's daughter. Inside, she tells her father, and he asks if she's so angry because what was said may be true. Gwen being given some much-needed colour here, and it's delightful to see. We're getting to a point where a serious decision needs to be made as to if Peter was going to tell Gwen, and it's fun to see how the creative team keep putting obstacles in their way to prevent it. Back to Spider-Man. He arrives at the location thanks to his Spider-Sense, which again doesn't work like that, but whatever, and deduces that it must be a trap, because the trail was too easy to follow. I kind of think the art, specifically last issue, meant to imply Spider-Man followed them, but Stan added the Spider-Sense stuff in the dialogue stage. My reasoning for this is there are no Spider-Sense lines in the art until Spider-Man arrives at his destination, which makes more sense. The danger is what triggers the senses. It's not an echolocator. He's not Daredevil. In a great sequence, Spider-Man sends in a web dummy with his costume top on. It's a really effective beat, but replete with Parker luck, as our hero gets stuck in his own web. The Kingpin's mockery of Spider-Man, a puny parody of a present-day superhero, is really funny. Spider-Man does have moments where he's really inept, and I guess that's part of his appeal. No matter how cool we think we are... 
We've all tripped over our own shoelaces at some point. Spidey avoids the Kingpin's blows and rips his shirt free of the webbing, and what follows is a brutal fight. There's something primal about this kind of battle. The Kingpin is a brawler. He's out to crush Spider-Man, and that's it. There's no gimmick for Spider-Man to exploit, and in close quarters battle, Spider-Man does not have the advantage. The only way to win is to make the Kingpin think he's defeated Spider-Man. Spider-Man pretends to be down, but the Kingpin turns the tables. Spidey then bounds around the room trying to escape the Kingpin's grasp, and only when the Kingpin uses his cane to blast Spider-Man off the wall does our hero catch a break. He webs his cane just as the Kingpin shoots, causing it to backfire, knocking the Kingpin out cold. The Kingpin isn't beaten though. As the police arrive, he tells them that Spider-Man is his ally, and he, Spider-Man, has stolen the tablet. What a bastard! Spider-Man, unaware of this development, has followed the scientist Wilson to the tablet and manages to locate it and take it for himself. Further proof that the Kingpin may have been intended to have superior strength here. His safe has no key, can only be opened by brute strength, and yet Spider-Man has to struggle to open it. Spidey nevertheless gets the tablet, but when he tries to give it to the police, they open fire on him. Spider-Man flees, fed up with the world. He's risked his life to do the right thing over and over, and this is his reward? Well, screw him. From now on, Spidey will be the menace the public believes him to be. A pretty marvellous issue. The art is moody, fitting in with the crime fiction narrative of the early days. The subplots are well handled, and it's nice to see Stan moving past the notion that he has to have all the cast in an issue, even if they have nothing to do. The Kingpin is a ruthless and relentless adversary, but he manages to crush Spider-Man, not with his meaty fists, but with his words. It's not too difficult to get the police to believe this. After all, Jonah has been decrying Spider-Man as an enemy of the people for a long time. And if you're in the media spotlight and yelling things loud enough, eventually people will believe it. Here we see the result of that. An innocent person demonised by one man's stupid rhetoric and hatred. I don't normally mention the letters, but this month there's a short note from future artist Kerry Gamble, which was nice to see. Issue 70 has an iconic cover from Mr. Ramita. Spider-Man stands on a wall, caught in a spotlight as the police, weapons drawn, close in on him. Poster worthy. Spider-Man Wanted opens with the Kingpin in prison, although he's allowed to wear his own clothes and cravat because they don't have a prison outfit big enough for him. He's bellowing about getting out, tracking down Spider-Man and getting the tablet back for himself. The prison guard is reading a copy of the Daily Bugle, the front page of which has a photo of Spider-Man with the tablet. Presumably Peter Parker didn't take this photo. Once again, given that this seems to be the same night, the speed in which the Bugle can print special editions is unprecedented. The Kingpin grasps the iron bars of his cell and slowly begins to twist. And what of our woe-begotten wall crawler? Well, he's still wallowing in self-pity, fed up of being the fall guy, and he decides that the best place to hide is at home. A lone copper tries to shoot him, but instead of webbing the guy's gun up, explaining the situation, and giving him the tablet, which may not get the police off his back completely, but would certainly eliminate one of his problems, he smacks the gun out of the officer's hand and swings away. Now, silly as this is, Peter is angry, fed up, and feeling pretty low, so... I'll give him a pass for this reckless behaviour. After stashing the tablet in his closet, he tries to sleep, but can't. And the next day at ESU, Gwen reads him the riot act for his behaviour. 
It's hard not to take Gwen's side here. Peter is always disappearing. He never remembers to call, and he is, at times, a lousy boyfriend. Peter, having been referred to as a coward, is also getting on Gwen's nerves. I often wonder when rereading these old comics if Stan had had the courage of Jack Kirby, a man who wasn't afraid to shake a book up. Would he have had Peter confess his secret to Gwen? And if so, would Conway have killed her? A negligible thought. Jonah, meanwhile, is harassing Robbie about being on the student protest story when Spider-Man and the Kingpin are the real meat. Robbie basically tells Jonah to fuck off. Working with Captain Stacy, the Dean of ESU has agreed to the low-rent dorms, something he was working on anyway, and he will also drop the charges. It's a rather pat solution, but it's nice to see Stan promoting cooler heads and conversation as a resolution to a problem, rather than the standard superhero solution of hitting people. Speaking of hitting people, the Kingpin escapes and knocks out a few guards before fleeing prison. Later, Peter has decided that he may as well be the one to get all the money for deciphering the tablet, and he heads over to the biggest authority on hieroglyphics in town, a man that everybody else seemed to have forgot to invite to the party. Sadly, the man can't help him, because the police are just hanging around, and it's here that Spidey overhears that the Kingpin have escaped. He concocts a plan to attract the Kingpin's attention. He deliberately starts rousting the Kingpin's men, making it obvious that he has the tablet with him. Now, Peter seems to be making more and more stupid decisions this issue. He's already had one opportunity to rid himself of this problem, when he could have easily gone to Captain Stacy, explained the situation, then left the tablet with him. Granted, Spidey wouldn't have gone to the police as Captain Stacy would have wanted, but I'm sure that's a better out than this. There's only so much slack I can cut a smart guy like Peter Parker when he's doing really dumb stuff like this. Still, his intention was to attract the attention of the Kingpin, and so his plan, such as it is, works. The Kingpin plans an ambush, with Spider-Man coming out on top, which is to be expected, but the fight is interrupted by a bugle patrol car driven by Jonah and Ned Leeds. Now, how the hell did they know what was happening and were? Spider-Man is all over town with no rhyme or reason. This attack was planned to draw the Kingpin to Spider-Man. And I'm sure Spidey didn't advertise where he was or what he was doing. Hell, he couldn't do that. This is all at random. Another car suddenly appears and the Kingpin dives in it and zooms away. Spider-Man blames Jonah for the Kingpin's getaway. Jonah yells that Spider-Man is the real menace and he'll hound Spider-Man until he's brought down. Spider-Man finally snaps, tells Jonah even he has a breaking point, and grabs Jolly Jonah by the lapels. Jameson, shitting himself, tries to hide behind Ned, which is hysterical. Sadly, Spider-Man is livid, and Jonah passes out in his arms, possibly of a heart attack. Spider-Man flees, his world collapsing around his ears. Has he finally proven himself as dangerous as Jonah said? An oddity, this one. It's not very well plotted, or thought out. As I said, there are many ways an intelligent man like Peter Parker could at least get rid of the tablet and get it back in safe hands, which would surely be the priority. Also, there are quite a lot of logic gaps and conveniences in the story, more than can normally be hand-waved away as being part of the inherent problems of the superhero genre. The Kingpin is likewise treated here as just another common thug, and that's to his detriment. However, the ending is effective. I buy Peter finally losing his temper with Jonah, especially after this, and I like that the repercussion of that is Jonah suffering with a health problem. 
in a story with the subtext of cowardice. It's a nice reminder that Jonah is inherently cowardly, something that has been a part of his character from the very beginning, when we learned that Jonah's own petty insecurities were responsible for the constant attacks on Spider-Man. Jonah can't believe a man would use his power to do good for no other reason than it's the right thing to do. In many ways, Jonah is the comic book fan who wants Batman to kill and who doesn't like Superman, simply because they would kill or they wouldn't do the right thing. Issue 71 is another great cover. And now Quicksilver has multiple Quicksilvers on the cover, an artistic interpretation of speed beating Spider-Man up. The speedster and the spider opens with Peter arriving home. Lest we forget, this is still the same night, the entire adventure taking place over about four days, and Harry is still out with MJ. As Peter sits and stews, he tosses his spider shirt across the room, just as Harry walks in. He must retrieve it with a quick web-shooting trick, whilst distracting Harry. Peter forgets to take his boots off, but Harry doesn't notice. Either that, or Harry simply thinks Peter has weird tasting slippers. Peter then develops his pictures from the night and realises they may clear him. Of course, without Jonah, who will buy them? Because, you know, the Bugle ceases to publish without Jonah, as do any of the other New York papers, apparently. Also abroad in New York, the mutant super-speed ally of Magneto, Quicksilver. He's arrived to prove himself and his sister, the Scarlet Witch, innocent of all wrongdoing, following their allegiance with the murderous master of magnetism. Sadly, the Avengers are away, and Quicksilver, a.k.a. Pietro Maximoff, sees a newspaper with WANTED Spider-Man on it. He decides to redeem himself by capturing Spidey instead of going back to his sister, who he left stranded in the middle of the Adriondacks. Oddly, Scarlet Witch is a brunette in this story. Maybe she died of her. Robbie is with Jonah at the hospital, where the doctors reveal that it isn't a heart attack, merely shock, but with Jonah out for the count, Robbie is in charge. This is good news for Peter. His photos do prove Spider-Man was trying to prevent the theft of the tablet, but also that the protesters were nothing to do with it. Robbie pays Peter more money than he's seen in years. He also finally comes to his senses and gives the tablet to George Stacy to return. With all these loose ends tied up, Stan looks like he's cutting Peter a break, which is an important thing to do. Having Peter constantly be under a cloud isn't a lot of fun for the reader. Or for Peter, so giving him a break every now and again is necessary. Still, we have no issue without conflict, and so Quicksilver arrives for the trademarked fight of misunderstanding. To show how padded and pointless this all is, the panels are massive. Four and two panel pages are the order of the day, and they are largely just Quicksilver and Spider-Man trading blows. It's all a bit rote and boring. The fight is thankfully interrupted by a funny scene of Jonah waking up to read his own newspaper proclaiming Spider-Man's innocence. Jonah keeps repeating that Spider-Man is guilty. I do wonder about Jonah's mental health on occasion. Everything is wrapped up quickly. Spider-Man drops Quicksilver, then grabs his unconscious form and runs away as the police arrive. This act proves to Quicksilver that Spider-Man is a righteous dude and he calls off the fight. Spider-Man doesn't actually confirm his non-criminal status, Quicksilver doesn't ask about it, and therefore this is all rendered moot and really rather unnecessary. As with the Medusa appearance, there's no real reason for Quicksilver to be here, and he serves no purpose. He doesn't tie into the tablet plot, there's no big development for Spider-Man, like if he'd realised that they need to talk this out like the protesters did, and it's not even a particularly good fight. It's rather lacklustre. 
Having Spider-Man fighter speedster could be visually interesting and compelling. After all, Spidey is normally the fastest one on the scene, and having him think his way out could have been fun. This, though, is rather meh. This whole tablet story has been thus. The protester stuff, with its racial tension and civil rights overtones, had far more meat to it than the tablet plot, which just seems to fizzle out after a promising start. Some of this may not be down to the creators. Romita is named as innovator on these last two issues, not plotter or penciler, so this may explain why these seem quite loose and not very well thought out. Shame, really. The tablet will return next issue, and the kingpin will return in issue 83. Issue 72, Rocked by the Shocker, is a simple cover, and for the first time, not a classic composition by Romita. The Shocker blasts the spider signal. That's it, really. There's a new name in the credits. John Buscema is credited as Innovator, alongside Stan Lee as author, Jazzy Johnny Romita and Jim Madman Mooney as illustrators. It's a curious addition. According to All That Jazz from Tomorrow's Publishing, Buscema contributed light pencils in blue, never in black, and despite hating drawing Spider-Man and superheroes generally, his pencils were always of a high quality. Romita then tightened up the lines and spotted the blacks. The credit Innovator came about because Romita felt that what Buscema was contributing was far more than rough layouts, like Kirby had done for him in the early days. Buscema's layouts were a proper storytelling gig and thus deserved a higher rate of pay, at least in Romita's eyes. There's a corker of an opener to this story. The Shocker blasts open the Stacy's wall, knocking Captain Stacy unconscious and stealing the stone tablet from his safe. But when he tries to fence it, he's told that it's too hot. No one wants to risk being hassled by either Spider-Man or the Kingpin. The Shocker, enraged, riots. And Peter hears all about it on the expositional news network, thanks to a convenient traveller on his bus. Or rather, a rude traveller. They've invented earbuds, pal. I have to wonder how the Shocker found out that George had the tablet. Only Spider-Man and George Stacy knew about it. Irrespective, this is an all-action beginning, flowing beautifully from one scene to the next. The Shocker attacks George, which brings a fishnet-whirring Gwen Stacy into the story, which leads directly to Peter, which leads directly to a confrontation between hero and villain, and all in less than six pages. Masterful. Peter leaps off the bus as he is conveniently near the location mentioned on the radio, and away we go. The Shocker is one of my favourite B-list bad guys, largely because I first encountered him as a kid. Sure, he's a low-rent electro, but there's something cool about a villain Spidey can't get near, and his quilted costume is quite neat. The first confrontation is an inversion of the usual expectations. Sure, Spider-Man isn't going to win straight away. There's the first confrontation that's inconclusive, followed by subplot shenanigans, followed by the final victory. But what subverts this is that Spider-Man does win. He kicks the Shocker right in the balls. An artistic error, I'm sure, but that's what it looks like, and knocks the Shocker out cold. The Shocker pulls a ruse and then punches Spider-Man off a roof. The Shocker then leaves, saying he will find Spider-Man later, not the other way around, which is the more usual tactic. Spider-Man plants a spider tracer, grateful because he has time to meet Aunt May at the train station. See, Peter has kindly bought a holiday to America's Graveyard, Florida, for May and Anna Watson, and he's arranged to see her off. This done, he picks up a paper, which is already reporting on his fight with the Shocker, which literally happened no more than 45 minutes ago. We know this because when Peter was on the bus, he said that May left in an hour. That's a remarkable turnaround on a new edition. 
Peter leafs through the paper and sees an article on Kurt Connors, a lovely setup for Connors' return a few issues hence. It's here Peter first muses about working with Connors, either as a summer internship or a part-time position, something that will happen eventually. Peter vows to contact Connors about this later, but it starts to rain, so he legs it for cover. Let's check in on Jonah. The poor man's having conniptions that his paper is calling Spider-Man a hero. It's a funny scene, particularly when Jonah has to be carried back to bed by the orderlies, and in the dialogue. Is he always this excitable? asks a harried nurse. Only when he's awake, replies the doctor. Now for more of those aforementioned subplot shenanigans. Peter bumps into Gwen in front of the coffee bee, and she tells him about the shocker's attack. They enter the establishment, only to see that Flash is back. Flash is a dick, asking Gwen why she doesn't write to him more often, and dissing Peter. Peter is no longer the milksop he was in high school and loses his temper. Peter is a tad hot-headed here, and perhaps could have been more diplomatic, but let's not forget all those years that Flash bullied Peter in high school. I can't imagine those emotions are ever really far from the surface. Gwen gets Peter to calm down, claiming Flash was kidding, but she takes Flash's side by pointing out that Peter is awfully hostile to a man who's seen combat, considering that Peter himself is never around when the trouble starts. This cuts deep. Gwen calls Peter a boy and Flash a man. Her feelings regarding Peter's disappearances have been bubbling under for a few issues, and it's good to see that, like a real argument between couples, Stan hasn't just forgotten it. Peter is a complex character. Gwen wasn't there for all those years that Flash made Peter's life a living hell. And, as we saw when I covered those comics, whilst Peter wasn't always the nicest of people, he never asked for Flash to be a dick. This is why I don't subscribe to the idea that Peter brought some of it upon himself. When he had the renewed confidence of gaining his powers, he started to stand up to Flash, but Flash still never led up. How much worse would Flash have been to Peter if Peter hadn't been bitten by a radioactive spider? Even here, Peter is more self-aware than Flash. He realises he was out of line, not for standing up to Flash, who deserved it, but for letting his jealousy get between him and Gwen. Needing to vent, he decides to track down the Shocker. Unable to sell the tablet, which he stashed somewhere, the Shocker hits an armoured truck. Spider-Man hits the Shocker. This is a much better fight than last issue. Spider-Man uses his webs in inventive ways, thanks to the Shocker's propensity for bringing buildings down on top of him. And there's a moment where the Shocker really lands a hard-hitting punch on Spidey. Stan again has some funny dialogue. You've tried to mock me for the last time, cries the Shocker. Tried? retorts Spidey. I thought I was quite good at it. Spider-Man gains the upper hand and takes the Shocker's vibral gadgets off him. Sadly, the armoured car guards fire on Spider-Man, his reputation as a menace preceding him again. Thankfully, unlike Jonah, the guards realise the error of their ways when they see the Shocker and the money and wonder why Spidey has such a bad rap. Our hero wonders the same thing in a great final panel as he sits and ponders. He's in the doghouse with Gwen, the tablet is gone, although that's not his fault, and he took no pictures. This is a better done-in one than last issue, but with the tablet providing a nice connective tissue between stories. Not as much time has been devoted to the other characters, though. We haven't seen Murray Jane or Harry for any substantial time, by our standards, although these stories must all take place over no more than a week for the characters. We're long past the strip moving in real time. Issue 73 is a unique cover. I don't think we'd ever seen a superhero with his shirt untucked before, but on this cover, new and really rather unmemorable adversary, Man Mountain Marco, grabs Spidey in such a way that it exposes skin. 
It was really unusual at the time. The cover itself is pretty good, although Marco looks a lot like an Elvis impersonator. The web closes, introduces the sensational Man Mountain Marco, which is overselling it considerably. The credits are again confusing. This time, John Buscema is the innovator, but John Romita is the coordinator, and Jim Mooney is the illustrator. Stan is still the author. Spider-Man has dropped by to see George Stacy, as he feels guilty about his being attacked by the shocker for the tablet. This is a needless blame game. Spider-Man left the tablet with George for George to get rid of it. George should have told the authorities straight away and got an armoured truck to secure it the minute Spider-Man gave it to him. Keeping it in his safe was stupid, and that's on George, not Spidey. Plus, we never did find out how the shocker knew George had it in the first place. Spider-Man has snuck into the stasis, which George rightly berates him about. Spider-Man does have boundary issues, he's done this kind of thing before, and George is correct to read him the riot act. Suitably chastised, Spidey asks George if he has any clue where the Shocker may have stashed the tablet, and George mentions a girlfriend of the Shocker's on the West Side Theatre District. She's an exotic dancer. It'd be nice if Murray Jane knew her. Anyway, after catching a glimpse of Gwen, Spider-Man leaves, but because he's really stupid, he doesn't ask the girlfriend's name. Spider-Man is doubly dumb, though. He overhears Gwen ask her father if Peter is called, and instead of ditching this Spider-Man lark for the night and making up and out with Gwen, he goes looking for the tablet. What a moron. His spider-sense leads him to her. Pretty sure that's not how it works, and he finds Man Mountain Marco roughing her up for the tablet. They have a confined and brutal fight inside the girl's apartment, but she's so unimportant as to never be named. It's a moderately entertaining fight in that Spider-Man is baffled how Marco keeps getting back up despite being a regular guy, but it's still a fight between yet another uninspired mobster and our hero. Stan keeps interrupting the fight to sow some subplot seeds. Lewis Wilson, the Kingpin's head brain and the man who told the Kingpin about the tablet, is bailed out by Caesar Cicero, a mob lawyer, and Joe and Randy Robertson continue the conversation about civil rights. Randy is still unsure about how his father seems to have made it, but Robbie argues that education got him where he is. Jonah then bursts in and reads Robbie the riot act about publishing a story where they call Spider-Man a hero and threatens to fire him. Robbie holds his ground, stating that this was news, not an editorial, and if he wants to start dictating false facts, he can get another editor. Randy is impressed that Jonah not only backed down but that his father's courage was enough to stand up in the face of racism. In a very important moment, Robbie defends Jonah. He's a blundering blowhard with a mad-on for Spider-Man, but just because he's white doesn't make him racist. That's a valid viewpoint even today. Jonah is a lot of things, but he isn't a racist, a point that will be made in upcoming stories. This is really the first step Stan and Co. will take to redeeming Jonah, as well as pulling back on him as a figure of fun. Back at the fight, Marco chucks the Shocker's girlfriend out of the window, and when Spidey dives after her to save her, Marco checks out with the tablet. He heads over to Silvermane, one of the last old-style leaders of the Magia left alive. Cicero arrives with Wilson, and they all identify the tablet as genuine. Silvermane seems to already know what the secrets of the tablet are. Still, he needs to fully understand the secrets in his hand, and to that end, he's kidnapped Kurt Connors to translate for him. 
Again, there's a lot of wheels spinning here as new plot elements are introduced slowly. The fight with Marco is far too long and mostly pointless, but the introduction of a new wrinkle in the guise of Silvermane is good. I don't understand why Kurt Connors is the best man to translate the tablet, as it really doesn't seem to be his specialty. I think my main problem with the story, though, is Peter, and by extension, Spider-Man, is a bystander in his own book. He's not at the forefront of the narrative. The shocker took the tablet to his girlfriend. Marco, a were of said girlfriend, and, under orders of his boss, Silvermane, retrieves the tablet from her and then takes it to Silvermane, who has also managed to get a hold of Wilson and Connors. The story has exactly the same beats if Spider-Man isn't involved, and has exactly the same outcome. The only impact Spider-Man has is that he saved the Shocker's girlfriend for being killed, but given that she isn't even named, we can't really consider her an important character, although presumably the people that like watching her dance are happy she's still alive. I think this would have been much better if the Marco Silvermane tablet story had been happening around Peter, who was doing something else entirely. He could have found out all about this next issue, and the story could have progressed as is. In fact, you could streamline this story further, have Marco be the one who attacks Stacy to steal the tablet. The shocker stuff is largely irrelevant anyway, and this brings Marco, and by extension Silvermane, into the story earlier, and gives Spider-Man an impetus for being involved, as Marco attacks Stacy directly. As it stands, Spider-Man isn't really involved now. He gave the tablet back to George Stacy, and it was stolen from him. So this is purely a police matter. Anyway, again, I don't make a habit of dwelling in the letters pages, but Peter Sanderson and James DiMatteis have letters in this issue. We're back to the classic covers for issue 64. Silvermane dominates the page, sipping a serum of some kind from a science beaker whilst holding the tablet. In the foreground, Spider-Man fights three thugs. Very movie poster-like in its composition and striking in its use of colours. John Buscema is no longer around with this issue credited to Ramita and Mooney only. If this be Bedlam, picks up where we left off, with Marco manhandling Dr. Connors and Silvermane informing him that they still need Connors, so back off. Marco uses Connors' family as leverage, telling him they invited Martha and Billy to New York as well. Did they, though? Because last issue, Peter phoned Kurt in the Everglades to inquire about a summer job, and Martha answered, and she clearly said they were in the Everglades. Stan apparently forgot all about this phone conversation at the end of last issue. Kurt is shown to the lab with Wilson and told he has 24 hours to translate the tablet. Stan tries to establish that they've picked Kurt for this task because it is believed that the tablet holds the secret to biology itself and Kurt is a biologist. Still seems a bit woolly to me, but whatever. Kurt tries to convince Wilson that there is a far greater danger than Silvermane, as if to underline the point, we see his hand become green and scaly. The artwork is exceptional in these opening pages, selling the danger and foreboding. Elsewhere, Spider-Man learns from the Bugle that Wilson was bailed out by Caesar Cesaro and swings over to his office to try and find out some further details. Spider-Man roughs Cesaro up a bit, even quoting Cool Hand Luke at him, and some of Stan's dialogue here is, once again, genuinely funny. Cicero hits a small button and his on-call goons come piling in and blab about how Spidey must be here to rescue Martha and Billy. Something Spider-Man wasn't even aware of. Big Mouth strikes again. 
This is a fun fight. Spidey clobbers a few of them with Cesura's law volumes, pointing out that they all look like they need some book learning. He then picks up a goon and uses him to knock out the other goons. Cesura legs it, grabbing Martha and Billy and booby-trapping the door. Spider-Man is too smart for that, though, but the resulting explosion is enough to provide cover for Cicero's getaway. This is great stuff. Spider-Man always works well when it's a crime noir book, and it's nice to see a return to that here, bringing in the Magia and crime bosses and such. The art is sublime. Romita at the top of his game, ably inked by Mooney, who adds a nice level of blacks to the pencils, giving the whole feel a very moody look. There are also great dynamics between the bad guys. Silvermane is at the end of his days, his body failing him, and Cicero is nipping at his heels to take over. Marco is dumb muscle, but he seems loyal to Silvermane, and I'd like more explanation of why that was. Silvermane believes the tablet holds the key to more than may have been previously suspected. Connors supports these beliefs, telling Silvermane he's close to figuring it all out, but the constant stress is causing Connors' mutation to creep back. Stan was always good at ticking clock scenarios, and his building of the tension, ably assisted by the art, is second to none. Spider-Man, meanwhile, is now at a loose end and heads home. Based upon the last few issues, I wonder why he can't just follow his spider sense. The next day, he sees that Harry has grown a rather embarrassing moustache, and he blows Harry off to go and do something else. Harry is pissed and reverts to type, saying Flash was right about Peter, but Gwen again defends him, saying Peter clearly has things on his mind, and if Harry was a real friend, he'd offer to help. Gwen, once again, being the voice of reason. I wonder if Harry being a dick like this is because he hung out with Flash a bit. Remember, Flash was back in town for a while, although Stan seems to have forgotten. Anyway, this interlude serves no purpose other than to introduce Harry's stash, and within moments, Spider-Man is back on the case. I wonder if Peter even went to school today. Sometimes I think we'd be better off not seeing the supporting cast at all, rather than seeing some useless scenes just to remind us that they exist. Back at Silvermane's, Kurt Connors has replicated the serum based upon the tablet's markings, and Silvermane downs it with no preamble. Again, every panel ekes out the tension as Silvermane collapses after drinking the serum. Marco thinks Connors has poisoned Silvermane, but this is not the case, as Silvermane rises looking like a man in his 40s. Another good issue, moving the stone tablet story along nicely, albeit with some superfluous scenes and some lazy plotting. Death Without Warning is issue 75, even though the cover is warning us that there will be a death. So it's probably not without warning then. Hmm. It is a great cover though. Spider-Man walks towards us, his head in his hands, as the figure of a man lies on the floor behind him. His back is reflected in the window as the dawn breaks over New York. Stunningly beautiful cover. Very evocative, very moody, very noir, as this entire storyline has been. Comic book opens with a four-panel splash, all running vertically down the page as Spidey searches for Dr. Connors. He hits on Two Hoods making book. I'll be honest, these guys don't look like they're up to anything too shady. They're on the phone, looking through some files and minding their own business when Spider-Man roughs them up and pulls them out of the window, threatening to drop them 20 stories if they don't tell him what he wants to know. We'll have to give Spider-Man the benefit of the doubt that he's had a run-in with these guys before and therefore knows they are up to no good. Terrified, the men tell Spidey that the Magia are at the Galby building and Spider-Man webs them up and leaves. Webbing them up seems pointless. He doesn't really have any proof that these men were committing a crime and he doesn't call the police to come and get them. So presumably in an hour they just walk away. 
At the Galby building, Marco refuses to believe the evidence of his own eyes and starts to slap Silvermane around. Silvermane, now a much younger man, smacks back as Caesar Cesaro enters and plants further seeds of discord. In the melee, Kirk Connors makes a break for it. Again, kudos to the plotter and the scripter for working in tandem. We see Silvermane growing younger, with Marco pointing out that the grey in his hair has disappeared as they fight. Again, Silvermane is implied, like the Kingpin, to have above average strength in the way he smacks Marco around. The secret of the tablet is revealed to be the secret of eternal youth, and Silvermane is delighted by this turn of events. Spider-Man then arrives, smashing through a window in dramatic fashion, and he handles Marco like the loser he is. Because really, there's no reason this Elvis wannabe should have even caused Spider-Man to breathe heavily. Dr. Connors, meanwhile, has snuck off to find his family. His thought balloons betraying that he's aware that the Fountain of Youth is a poison chalice. Sadly, the stress of the last few days take their toll, and he undergoes a full-on metamorphosis into the lizard. Maybe it's Mooney's inks, maybe it's that Ramita is now much more comfortable with the art, but this is a much better depiction of the lizard than when Ramita drew him last in issue 44. The lizard flees to be a problem for another day, or at the very least another issue. Spider-Man is unaware of any of this as he tries to ditch Silvermane, who he calls an oversized Peter Pan, to find Connors. The problem becomes moot, however, as Silvermane starts to get so young as to not to provide a problem for Spider-Man. Cicero then bursts in and Spidey must tackle him and his thugs, but he breaks off when he hears a blood-curdling scream. He follows the sound, only to bear witness as Silvermane vanishes into nothingness. Spidey muses that that's why the tablet was so hard to decipher. It was a secret too dangerous for mortal men. Which begs the question, why write it down at all? Anyway, all that's left is the wrap-up. Spider-Man finds Martha and Billy and frees them, but they are left with the question of what happened to Kurt Connors. The final page is a prelude to the next issue. Kurt desperately tries to fight off the lizard's curse, but ultimately fails. All that is left is a lizard, deadlier than ever before. A triumph of a conclusion. Silvermane's fate is chilling, and I remember being horrified by this as a kid, especially as I'd already read the stories where Silvermane returns in a bionic body, a situation largely played for laughs in Nick Spencer's recent Superior Foes of Spider-Man series. The art is a career best for both men, and a true synthesis. If you are familiar with both Ramita and Mooney's work, this looks like both of them, each doing their level best to enhance the final product. The story benefits greatly from not cutting to subplots and by concentrating only on the main story. As such, the action is driven forward at breakneck speed. Again, Spider-Man doesn't really do a lot. Silvermane would have died even if Spidey hadn't shown up, but at least he saves the Connors. The plot has its problems and meanders a bit in places, none of which interferes with this issue, which, viewed in isolation, works wonderfully. Best also to not pick at the scab that is the plot. The finest minds in the world couldn't figure out that the tablet was actually biochemical symbols and thus they needed a biologist to aid with the translation, but a bunch of mobsters and hangers-on managed to work that out almost straight away? Maybe mobsters are smart, or certainly smarter than this issue begs them out to be. The ending though is powerful. Many comics fans argue that these heroes should kill, but this misses the point of the heroic ideal, and it's amazing to me how many people who read this shit haven't figured that out. 
Spider-Man barely knows Silvermane, and what he does know about the man isn't very nice. But the final panels, where Silvermane disappears into nothingness, is powerful stuff, demonstrating the level of empathy the character of Peter Parker possesses. A death, any death, diminishes us, and here we see Peter bemoan his ability to do more. Of course, Silvermane's quest for power led to his own downfall, and the irony of his death is beautifully handled by Stan Lee and magnificently rendered by Mooney and Ramita. Which makes it all the sillier that other writers resurrected Silvermane. Why can't comics writers leave things alone? Silvermane was resurrected in Daredevil issue 122 in 1975, in as brick-dumb a way as you can imagine. Silvermane apparently didn't die here at all. No, apparently after reaching the youngest conceivable state of human existence, he was snapped back to a more useful age. Arrested by the police, rescued by Hydra, and then wore a mask to convince us he was the elderly Silvermane when he was actually significantly younger than that. The resurrection itself is stupid, the whirring of the mask even dumber, as none of these people in this Daredevil comic know who the fuck Silvermane is. The mask makes no sense other than to make him look like Granny Goodness. <sighs> he then returns to running the mob, appearing in Amazing Spider-Man 178, where he is dropped from a great height by the third Green Goblin, Bart Hamilton, and breaks every bone in his body. In a massive continuity cock-up, he's fine in Peter Parker Annual Number 2, but suddenly on life support in Peter Parker Issue 69, and it's here he's placed in a cyborg body. It just gets stupider from there. And it's proof, if proof were needed, that certain writers need to let things go. None of the stories involving Silvermane's resurrection needed that character at all, and all of them diminish the original. If you wanted to use a mobster villain from Spider-Man's past, what the hell's Blackie Gaxton up to? Anyway, back to this run of comics. Issue 76, the cover is magnificent. A dizzying camera points towards the street as the lizard, who can use his claws to grip sheer surfaces, punches Spider-Man off the wall and down to the busy street below. John Buscema is back as innovator, with John Romita nowhere to be seen. Jim Mooney is the illustrator here, and Stan is still the author. The lizard bursts through a wall and appears on a rooftop. Rather oddly, he then climbs up, despite already being shown at the top of the building. Presumably he's leapt to another building, although this isn't clearly shown. It also isn't a particularly auspicious beginning. The lizard chats amongst himself for three and a quarter pages, and whilst the art is pretty damn good, this is a massive waste of time. He recalls the faces of Martha and Billy without knowing why, but remembers with perfect clarity the last time he fought Spider-Man. This is enough for him to vow vengeance upon our hero. Speaking of our hero, he has escorted Martha and Billy to... somewhere. It can't be their own apartment, as Spider-Man mentions that the lizard can't find them here, the implication being that he doesn't know about this place. Besides, presumably their home is in Florida. It also doesn't seem to be a hotel, and I can't believe Connor's salary is such that he can afford a home in Florida and an apartment in New York. Although, it was the late 60s, so maybe that was more affordable then. The kidnappers also allowed Billy and Martha to pack their suitcases, which was remarkably civilised of them. Although Martha allows Spider-Man to pay for the cab, with all that money that he carries in that costume. With the Connors out of harm's way, for now, Spider-Man resumes his own life before looking for the lizard. 
This means Stan zooms past a few minor characters. He checks in on Aunt May to see how she is, and Burley has time for a quick hi, bye, between Peter and Harry. Peter then rushes over to Gwen, past a news vendor stacking copies of Silver Surfer, presumably issue 8, which was on the shelves at roughly the same time as this issue. The conversation with Gwen is sadly given real short shrift. Three panels, and all is right between them again, as Gwen does the dutiful girlfriend bit and vows to wait for Peter, however long that takes. Much more could have been done with this. Gwen raises the quite reasonable question of where Peter keeps disappearing to, and even thinks there may be another woman. This isn't just paranoia on Gwen's part. She's seen Murray Jane practically throw herself at Peter, seen her be happy at the thought of them breaking up, and put up with her snide asides. It's understandable if Gwen therefore thinks there's something going on between Peter and MJ. Peter does nothing to allay her fears, which is why Gwen's response is so weak. He doesn't give her anything, really, just vague promises and empty gestures. In the den of the Stacey house, Robbie Robertson and George Stacey are having one of their conversations about Spider-Man. Robbie has apparently been hitting the Grecian 2000 because his hair is no longer grey like it was in the last few issues, although having a teenage son be arrested can prematurely age you. They exit the den to see Peter and Gwen and start asking Peter what he knows about the wall crawler, which gives Peter the heebie-jeebies. Gwen protests and says Peter came to spend the evening with her and Stan cuts to the next morning. I like to think that in between these panels, Peter and Gwen went out for a nice evening together, did all the things that young lovers do, righted the wrongs in their relationship and emerged stronger than ever, resulting in them spending the night together and once again nullifying any chance that sins past ever happened. I will keep banging this drum. Whatever happened last night, Peter is so knackered that he doesn't go looking for the lizard. Rather, he waits until he hears a news report about him smashing up New York and webs out towards his last known location. What follows is a supremely well-choreographed extended fight scene, although the cliché count is exceptionally high. We don't get a, how can someone so big be so fast, but we do get the lizard boasting that he's stronger than ever, how his last defeat was pure bad luck on his part, and Spider-Man has a moment of everything depending on one specific move. Spider-Man concocts a plan. Not a very good plan, but a plan. He'll fake defeat have the lizard throw him off the roof, web into a window, and then attack the lizard when he comes after him. It's pretty much the same plan he used on the kingpin, and I don't see how it makes him any better off. He's still not in very good shape after the beating he's taken. The lizard would surely suspect a trap, and in close quarters the lizard actually has the advantage due to his tail. Still, it's all Spidey has, but as he begins to initiate it, pretending to fall to his doom, the human torch saves his life. Talk about your bad timing. Back on the rooftop, with Spider-Man still too wounded to fight, the torch faces off against the lizard. Issue 77 has a Ramita cover that isn't as good as other Ramita covers, and by those standards is merely very good and not excellent. The human torch flies between the lizard and Spider-Man, and Spider-Man fires webs at the high-flying hothead. The torch, however, is the star of the cover, which is why it doesn't really work for me. This is Spider-Man's book, so he should be front and centre. In the blaze of battle, has Ramita return as Consultant Emeritus in Residence. Whatever the hell that means. 
This is pretty much an all-battle issue, full of more of the standard Stanley cliches of the you didn't expect me to do that, did you? and everything depends upon this move variety. It's also very, very irritating. Spider-Man ends up fighting the Torch and the Lizard because he can't tell the Torch why he's really taking it on the Lizard in case the Torch figures out who the Lizard is. This is really woolly thinking on our hero's behalf. There are any number of ways that Spidey could clue the Torch into what's going on without mentioning any names at all, all of which would avoid a pointless fight of misunderstanding. This also implies that the Human Torch, aka Johnny Storm, aka Dumb Blonde Male Division, has any clue who Dr. Kurt Connors is, which I'm willing to bet he doesn't. If Spider-Man had done this, chatted to the Torch, told him what was going on, and then worked with the Torch to subdue the Lizard, then this would have made a much better first half for this issue, which is otherwise rather repetitious in its following of the standard tropes of a Lizard story. As it is, after 15 pages of fighting, the Torch nearly drowns the Lizard, Spider-Man rescues him, and then convinces the Torch to leave, having heard a distress signal from the Fantastic Four with his Spider-Sonic hearing. He has no such power, of course, but Spider-Man knows Johnny isn't very bright, and he convinces Johnny to leave to help the FF. Johnny never once wonders why the Fantastic Four didn't send up a floor. He simply leaves the lizard with Spider-Man, despite constantly complaining about Spider-Man's handling of the lizard. What, there wasn't a police precinct the Torch could have dropped the lizard off at? The fight is at least visually appealing, thanks to Big John Buscema's layouts. Elsewhere, Martha shows her parenting credentials by paying young Billy so little attention that he runs off to locate his dad. By pure fluke, or lazy writing, you decide, Billy ends up at the exact same warehouse in all of New York that Spider-Man has taken the lizard to. What are the odds? For reasons, the warehouse has the exact chemicals that Spider-Man needs to help the lizard. It's labelled CACL2, which is a dehydration powder. Again, what are the odds? The lizard attacks Billy, who for some reason has now changed his name to Bobby, which demonstrates just how much attention Stan was paying to all of this. Spidey throws the powder all over the lizard and dries out his body's moisture and triggers a chemical reaction that reverts the lizard to Kirk Connors. Remember when Spider-Man had to labour for hours over a mixture of chemicals, trying this and that, desperately hoping to isolate the materials needed to cure Kurt without actually hurting him? Well, screw all that, let's just throw some talcum powder at him. It works on babies' asses. Hmm. Let's see. A 15-page fight scene, two lazy coincidences in two pages, forgetting one of the lead character's names and a really unsatisfying conclusion... Not Stan's finest hour. Add to this that CACL2 is actually used in fire extinguishers and dehumidifiers as it's a de-icer. So it can be used to remove moisture, but not at this level and not in its concentrated form. It can also be used in male animals as a sterilant, which may explain why Kurt and Martha never had any more children. Thanks, Spidey. Anyway, the Connors are reunited and Spider-Man swings away. The penultimate and final panels are the best ones in the comic. A wonderful shot of Spider-Man swinging upside down, followed by him sitting on a smokestack with the sun setting in the background. 
He's worried about the torch finding him after he learns of Spidey's ruse. But Johnny forgets all about this and doesn't see Spider-Man again until Marvel team up issue one, three years hence. So then, a truly mixed bag of stories. Whilst they are mostly enjoyable, clearly there's a lack of a single hand at the driver's wheel, causing the car to veer all over the road. The very credits for the artists, and combined with Stan's reported workload at this time, aren't doing this series any favours. The art isn't the problem, though. Buscema may have hated drawing superheroes, but you wouldn't know it from his pencils, which ooze cool in the Silvermane issues, and give us a far scurrier lizard than ever before. Sadly, the lack of attention shows in the writing. The Kingpin just disappears, subplots go nowhere, important characters amount to nothing as Stan forgets what's happening from one issue to the next. Add in pointless diversions with Quicksilver and the Shocker, and you're left with probably the least satisfying Masterworks volume so far. There are good elements here. As I say, the stone tablet story has moments, but its lack of care in the plotting stages means it's a good idea in search of competent execution. There is, however, a novel of this arc, Forever Young by Stefan Petruca. In the novel, the first half of which adapts this run of comics, the Kingpin's motivations are better explained, as he and Silvermane are involved in a turf war from the very beginning, and the civil unrest concerns grants for less well-off students rather than accommodation. Plot holes are also filled in. It's not as stupid here that the tablet is figured out by the goons in the Kingpin's aid. In the novel, the ubiquitous Wesley has an historical interest in the tablet, and Stacy doesn't take the tablet to Police HQ, as he suspects certain officers as being on the Magia payroll. The whole situation is set up by the schemer, and he has been watching Spider-Man and thus sees him give the tablet to George. In the novel, it is Marco who steals it, not the Shocker, and his issue and Quicksilvers are eliminated. The novel then makes a bizarre narrative choice and skips two years ahead, meaning two of the main characters we've been reading about, Gwen and George Stacy, are dead. I'll be honest, the book lost me here. I was really enjoying this. It was a really easy read, very, very swift. I read the first half over one Saturday afternoon, but this was a jarring turn of events. It was akin to watching the first season of Game of Thrones and then skipping to the final season without ever having watched what happened in the interim. As such, as of this recording, I haven't yet finished the book, but I will continue to plough through it, there's only about 100 or so pages left, and see if it takes a turn for the better. And that concludes this issue's look at Amazing Spider-Man. The next time we look at Spidey, we'll pick up where we left off. But for now, here's a commercial break advertising somebody else's podcast, because I'm nice like that, and then we'll be back to look at your emails. If you rebuild it, they will go. They burned it down. If you rebuild it, they will come. You didn't hear them? Beg your pardon? The voice? If you they blew it up. If you rebuild it, they They demolished it. If you rebuild it, they will go. But horror has a permanent address. Welcome to my home. The House of Frankenstein lives. You see, uh, we began a project a few years ago, but unfortunately, it was it was interrupted, and we're most anxious to take it up again. In September and October, the Fire and Water Podcast Network presents a Supermates tradition. 
covering four classic horror films and four related comic book adventures. I must find more victims before my work is done. You need look no further, Vampirus. We'll take the bat jet to the Hall of Justice and transform the other super friends. <laughs> Featuring an all-star cast. James Spader. Are you crazy? Jack Nicholson. Oh, just marking my territory. Anthony Hopkins. She lives beyond the grace of God. A wanderer in the outer darkness. Lon Chaney Jr. One becomes accustomed to the darkness here. Michelle Pfeiffer. You're afraid that when it gets dark, you'll attack me. Vincent Price. Let's uh, see what the rest of this mausoleum looks like. Gary Oldman. Enters freely of your own will and leave some of the happiness you bring. Winona Ryder. I almost feel pity for anything so hunted as this count. Peter Cushing. I am a doctor. Of medicine, law, and physics, to the best of my knowledge, doctorates are not awarded for witchcraft. But if ever they are, no doubt I shall qualify for one. And Keanu Reeves. Doctor! This Halloween, visit our field of screams at the scenic House of Frankenstein, where terror is only a listen away. <laughs> Hello! And welcome back. It's all connected. Blech, is our first email tonight from Nathaniel Wayne. Hey there, Andy. Hello, Nathaniel. Just finished your most recent look at Amazing Spider-Man. Well, that's timely. And I'm basically going to zero in on and add to your complaints about what was done with Peter's parents. Although it's not nearly as egregious an alteration of Peter's parentage as the reprehensible Trouble miniseries that Mark Miller would do later. So clearly it could be much worse. I've noticed that over a long enough timeline, any long-running story, be it comics, TV, etc., has a strong tendency to eventually make everybody special in some way until there are practically no more normal people left in the story. The point at which this starts to turn can vary, but it feels like Spider-Man, and so many others, builds and expands its world to a point and then staunchly refuses to grow it any further. This is the point at which no new meaningful villains get introduced anymore. Dead characters get brought back. Existing characters get granted crazy retcons or new powers, etc. And when this happens, it always makes the world seem so very small to me. Like there's only a few dozen people of any import who even exist. It's basically your snarks about how geographically small Stan's New York City is expanded out as a story problem. In some ways, it's a problem with interconnected stories as well, because let's say you want to do a Spider-Man story where some other dimensional shenanigans are at play. Why introduce a new character to be involved when you can just use Doctor Strange? At first, that's fine. Oh, look, fun connection. But do that often enough and it can feel like nobody exists except for these heroes. After a while, the connections restrict the world rather than expand it. Yeah, I'm just going to butt in for a second there, because, you know, I can... Uh, didn't there end up being a point in X-Men lore where it felt like every single person was a mutant? And wasn't that behind Bendis' No More Mutants storyline? Was that House of M where he felt that we needed to take down a peg or two just how many mutants there were? Um, I don't remember House of M because I have read it but thought it was amazingly boring and therefore I've cast it out of my memory. Uh, so I don't actually recall the details of it, but I seem to recall that was one of the reasons behind that story, that there were just too many mutants. This is one of the reasons, Nathaniel continues, I'm not fond of modern Doctor Who's tendency to make the Doctor a huge mythical figure renowned across the universe and basically a figure of legend nearly anywhere he shows up. I'm going to use he because this hasn't really been the case with Whittaker's Doctor so far. 
And you can go on all you want about how his time machine and planet-saving nature means he can have been to more planets and saved more people than any other being who ever existed. Except the universe is supposed to be infinite. And to quote Douglas Adams, any finite number divided by infinity is close enough to zeros to make no odds. Bringing it back to Spider-Man, I think the worst extrapolation of the thing with his parents happened in the two amazing Spider-Man films, where not only were they involved in some kind of corporate espionage and or spy stuff, but their history directly tied to how Peter got his powers. Half the point is that Peter gets his powers by freak accident. He's not destined to be Spider-Man, that's not his story. Made all the more frustrating by the fact that the two movies didn't even follow through on this bollocks, yet also failed to properly drop it like Stan did, until, as you noted, it got picked up by the odious 90s. Oh well, rant over. If folks like this rant, why not check out the Council of Geeks YouTube channel where they can hear many, many more like it. It's probably well enough for my more uncomfortable plug insertions to date. Sorry if there's any bruising. Keep up the good work, geekily host Nathaniel Wayne. <laughs> Yeah, the everything is connected thing irritated me a lot in Spider-Man 3, where suddenly there was an off-camera presence in the murder of Uncle Ben that was the Sandman. That made no sense whatsoever and hurt the movie. I couldn't get past that ridiculous retcon because I'm not one of those people who dislike Spider-Man 3. I think the Venom stuff has a lot of potential and making him a contemporary of Peter and an adversary of Peter, essentially giving him the Lance Bannon role, if you remember who Lance Bannon is. In the comics, he was a rival photographer for, for Peter Parker at the Bugle, who got better work because he was actually a trained photographer and Peter isn't. All that worked for me. Um, but the Sandman stuff, why couldn't you just have Sandman be in it as a baddie and leave it at that? All that gumph with his daughter. Ugh. Anyway, thank you, Nathaniel. Yes, he has recently done a video about um, the problems with Doctor Who being this mythical figure on his Council of Geeks YouTube channel, and I heartily recommend you go and check it out. Our next email is also Doctor Who related. Okay, I'm going to talk about Kablam, which is from Alistair Jakes. Hey, Andrew. Hello, Alistair. Your podcast remains a delight. Well, that's appropriate given its name. I may write a separate email about Battlestar Galactica and my thoughts on Shatner for you to parcel out when you have the time, but I need to address the elephant taking a dump in the middle of the room. If you have not watched the episode Kablam from Jodie Whittaker's first series of Doctor Who and you care about spoilers, then be warned. I am about to spoil that episode and dissect it. Spoilers for Kablam. Let's address the point you brought up in response to my last email, the whole it's critical of Amazon but not really thing. As far as I can gather, the moral seems to be, yes, Amazon sucks, but don't commit terrorism to stop it. Or to be more nuanced, the system is flawed, but there are still some good people within it who cur and just need a little nudging to do so. I'm not overly fond of this message, but I don't especially have a problem with it in concept. At a time when the country is becoming more divided and advocates for change are being vilified as dangerous radicals, I can understand a writer going, but let's not commit mass terrorism, eh? I don't agree that advocates for change are dangerous radicals, but I understand how someone within a certain demographic might receive information from the media that leads them to think that. Like I said the last time I messaged you, the problem isn't the message, it's that the episodes are so poorly written, the message is undermined. At a certain point in the story, a sympathetic character watches as the robots of the delivery company kill the woman he loves using explosive bubble wrap. The Doctor lately explicitly states that the AI running the company killed her so that would-be terrorists would understand the heartbreak his plan would cause. I'll say that again. The AI running the company killed an innocent woman to hurt her boyfriend. 
The reason it is now common parlance to refer to a character being killed off for dramatic effect as fridging is because a villain in a superhero comic once killed off her superhero's love interest and left her body in a refrigerator for him to find so as to piss him off. Yeah, it was a Green Lantern comic, if memory serves, and Gail Simone termed the, coined the term fridging, I believe. It happens so often in media that there is a webpage called Women in Refrigerators that attempts to chronicle all the instances. The worst part is that the Doctor seemingly has no problem with the AI killing an innocent woman, brings up the deliberate action by the AI as the reason for the terrorist to stand down. It doesn't even have any impact on the plot. The would-be terrorist doesn't stop or change his mind, and the Doctor still has to save the day in a different way. It is entirely unnecessary, gratuitous death of a lovely character that makes the Doctor seem to be in favour of murdering innocents. Even Colin Baker and the Sylvester McCoy Doctors weren't that dark. I think I need to go and watch Kablam again. Because I remember thinking it was an entertaining enough episode with a very muddled message which seems to be what you're saying Alistair in this email so I need to I, I want I would like to revisit all of Jodie Whittaker's emails emails all of Jodie Whittaker's episodes before the new series starts I've rewatched the first one and I rewatched the last one Resolution god that's an episode with a lot of divergences isn't it Resolution there's a good episode at the heart of that one a good story of this lone Dalek having to rebuild itself and terrorising everyone and the Doctor being on the back foot all the way through. But the pointless diversions with Graham and Tosin Cole's character, whose name I can't even remember. Um, the family, I, I don't care. Russell T. Davis took the kitchen sink drama element of Doctor Who as far as I want to see it taken. In the Every now and again, the Doctor would show up, walk into the middle of a soap opera, and then go, I've had enough of this shit, and leave. And yet, that entire episode seemed like it was an episode of Coronation Street, or some family drama about families. And I could not give a rat's ass about Ryan, Ryan, that's his name, about Ryan's dad. Could not care less. And the whole stuff with Ryan's dad's microwave, it, oh, no, no, no. Talk about signposting the ending. But I haven't rewatched the middle of the, the show. I've watched the beginning and the end again. I've not rewatched the middle. So I may rewatch Kablam again and see what I think second time round. Our final episode tonight TJ Galactica from Jason Trenner. Hello, and hello, Jason. The Walt Simonson Battlestar Galactica was an interesting beast. It's amusing it seemed to do some things we'd see in the reboot, and a bit amusing Walt Simonson worked on the comics of Star Wars and the comics for a series that existed due to Star Wars. So yeah, the Battlestar Galactica series is not mentioned with the same reverence as Star Wars or ROM or the Simon Furman Transformers material. On to Thomas Jefferson Hooker. Dear Lord, is that a series I don't remember at all? I remember the show prior, which was Tales of the Gold Monkey, and frankly a live-action pulp adventure show has more life than T.J. Hooker ever had. Seriously, the episode had Hooker against an evil attorney that can use T.J.'s own very questionable methods against him. Not expecting deep thinking on this show, but a sleazy and evil attorney sounds like it would be the perfect foil for the main character, and form Hooker to get back to using the rules and use them against the bad guy. Of course, that required people that at least wanted to make an interesting story. Yeah, again, I don't know if I went into this in detail in the episode. Having him be a lawyer and keep getting Hooker's case thrown out of court would have also served as impetus for Leonard Nimoy's character to keep getting more and more angry at the system. As it was, it was just, I am angry at the system because I am. 
And it was meh. Jason continues, yeah, I want to see used bookstores make a comeback. Though I have to disagree on the creation of a culture of people wishing their fulfilled and narcissistic desires. I'm sure those people existed long before the internet. The internet just gives them a place to feed it. Doesn't mean we have to care about them. Glad you're reading more books, and I do wonder if you'll find Tarzan alive in a used bookstore. It is a professional writer trying to make sense of Tarzan's publishing history, and through genealogy having related to a bunch of other famous characters, which spawned a huge amount of people trying to write their articles to fit in the Wald Newton universe, as it was called. I wrote several articles when those sites were active in the noughties to add in the Transformers. Sometimes I doubt you're surprised about that. I do hope you find The Indestructible Man in a second-hand shop, as you told me on Facebook, that it was an expensive book. I had no idea it was and didn't really look up the prices online. I just saw it mixed two things you enjoy and figured it would be interesting for you. Yeah, I've got, I've got no problem reading The Indestructible Man if I can find a copy. That's the thing, though, isn't it? Okay, thank you very much. Thank you to Jason. Thank you to Alistair. Thank you to Nathaniel for emailing in. Next time on the Palace of Glittering Delights, it's already written. Because the Spider-Man episodes take a lot longer to write than you would think. Uh, I'm going to be looking at the first season of Robin of Sherwood. Robin, the hooded man, bum, bum. Yep, the first season of Robin of Sherwood came my way. Uh, my wife bought me the collected Blu-ray set for Christmas, believe it or not. It took me this long to actually get around to cracking it open and watching it. And I've just burned through the first season. So we'll be talking about Robin of Sherwood next time. And remember, if you want to email in, heykidscomics at virginmedia.com is the email address. Or you could Facebook me or Twitter me or whatever. As Tim Elliott did, talking about the time lash episode of UFO that I did and how much he loves UFO. Anyone with half a brain should love UFO. It's a great show. Uh, thank you, Tim, for that Facebook message. Thank you, everybody else, for emailing. And I'll be back next time, whenever that may be. So I'll see you then. And remember, it's all going to be okay. It's going to be fine. It's going to be great, in fact. This week has been hysterical. <laughs> uh, see you later. Ta da!